Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us to explore the ideas behind today's headlines. Man, lift I cease pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. Man, ride I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Good, Dave. Doing great. How about yourself? Yeah, doing pretty well. Busy week. It's the final week leading up to graduation. So lots going on around here for sure, but, but it's all good. And obviously, uh, you know, excited to reach the culmination of the, of the year and, and the four-year career for our, for our graduates. So that's one of the high points of the academic year for sure. How many graduates this year at the King's College? 120 something. So wow. it's, it's a big okay. group. A number of them uh, graduated in, in December, but uh, are walking in May. So we'll, we'll have a big, big group, lots of family. It's nice, of course, with the COVID restrictions having been lifted, that we can have all the graduates and their families in the church together on Saturday, Lord willing. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. That's neat. So this would probably be, I, I probably didn't have any of these graduates if I left in 2018. So they're all post Corbin group. So they're all going to do really well in life. <laughs> Taking a class with me and having to go, to go through that. At the top of the resume. Exactly. Post Corbin. Um, a great news week. Uh, although the, the leak was uh, in and of itself, um, just uh, incredibly uh, unjust. It shows you just how uh, important this this decision is uh, to to undo Roe v. Wade. I mean, I, I'm amazed, right? It feels a little bit to me like um, the fall of the Soviet Union, right? This thing that you kind of hoped for and you wondered yeah. this ever happen. And there's always discussion of whether or not it would. And and here we are on the precipice uh, of undoing uh, one of the uh, worst um, argued uh, decisions of all time, maybe the worst argued decision of all time. Terribly reasoned and obviously with uh, profoundly immoral consequences. So uh, there was never a Supreme Court decision that was more worthy of, of being overturned besides uh, Dred Scott. Um, Plessy, you know, there's, there's a few other on that list of, of the worst ever, but, but certainly Roe has to be right there near the top. And yeah, we'll, we'll see. Obviously, we're waiting for the final word, but just like you're saying, you know, it's really, I think back 30 years ago when Casey came out and it was so close, you know, it looked like at that point Roe might've been overturned mm-hmm. and, and there's been all the talk ever since and, you know, efforts to move the court in a certain direction and think about all the efforts of, of the Federalist Society and others in making the case for original meaning as the, as the right way of interpreting the constitution, someone like how the out there writing books, giving lectures, you know, after his retirement, he's still at it, still pressing the case, uh, and many others, you know, heroically, whether it's organizing marches or, or doing the, the, the work behind the scenes and preparing the legal arguments 
uh, the states that courageously passed laws in the face of Roe and were willing to take that hit, knowing those laws would be set aside by some federal court immediately, um, but yet we're willing to let the process play out. There's a lot of people um, who have worked really hard for a long time toward this end. Well, yeah, great, great week. And I'm sure that, uh, I mean, the one thing that you think about is the amount of political courage that it took, just courage that it took to write this opinion. And we were talking before we began to tape today's show that you wondered whether the leak would have any influence upon uh, the final opinion that was written, whether it would be undone or the backlash would be so great, you know, on the news that, you know, these folks would be like, well, you know, maybe... Maybe we should step back and and um, and change the opinion. You certainly think that was probably the, the goal of the individual who who leaked uh, the opinion, right? That popular um, the popular onslaught uh, against it uh, would lead them to change their mind. But I think you rightly said that they probably knew going in, even if they signed on to this preliminary opinion, what the stakes were, how the ruling class would come down upon them, and. They made the decision to to make the right choice, uh, regardless of, of whatever consequences were out there in terms of public opinion and and them being held up as bad or unjust or evil or wicked people uh, for doing what was right. Speaking of courage, uh, talking about some of the virtues today, among other things, in our selection from Aristotle. So why don't we turn there, getting near the end of book seven? Yes, yeah, so we're covering chapters thirteen through fifteen uh, for today. And uh, these are uh, the last two or three sets of readings have been really interesting because they kind of they hold together uh, this this paradigm of of what the best life is for individuals and states. Uh, he really goes through in a very deliberate way. Well, uh, an individual or a state, you know, you need a population, you need land, uh, you need placement, um, you need a state that has certain functions that it provides for. And we went through uh, that last week. But then he goes through some kind of basic axioms of, or, or principles of, of how you understand how you achieve happiness uh, in, this, in this world. And um, he kind of uses language that reminds me a lot of our mentor, Angel, Angelo Cotavilli, who was always one who talked about means and ends, right? So just you know, kind of break down this, whatever is in front of you in the, in the simplest terms. And, and the simplest way to do things is, Okay, what is your end and what are your means? And this is exactly what Aristotle writes at the beginning of chapter 13. Quote, there are two things in which all well-being consists. One of them is the choice of a right end and aim of action, and the other, the discovery of the actions which are means toward it. For the means and the end may agree or disagree. So whenever you're doing something as a human being or as a community, you have to have an end before you. And then you have to figure out what are the best means to achieve that end. So if you were to take that concept and apply it to the United States uh, as a political entity, the end of the United States is declared within the Declaration of Independence. It's it's kind of stated within the Declaration of Independence that because this is our idea of right, this is how we believe that government ought to be constituted and this ought to be the relationship between the government and the governed, established on the principle of political equality. 
Now, what means are we going to put into place to achieve that end? And we see some of those means, right, in the Articles of Confederation, but we see that those means didn't necessarily line up with the ends within the Declaration of Independence. Hence, the means had to be reconsidered. So within the Federalist Papers, which we've written on, there's a discussion of, okay, what are the ends that we're after? And, and, and a somewhat of a reformulation of the ends as kind of um, understood in the Declaration of Independence or not reformulation, but kind of a, a thinking through um, uh, in, in clearer terms and in more particular or tangible terms. But then most of the discussion within the Federalist Papers that is making the case for the new federal constitution is a discussion as to whether or not the means that we put in place will achieve the end that we have in mind. What do you make of all this, Matt? Yeah, that's a great summary. And you think about the two, what I often call macro means that are advocated by that founding generation. Uh, the first is a Republican form of government. And you get into the details of that, obviously, especially in the second half of the Federalist, where you go through the branches of government, their relationship to each other, the relationship between the national government, the state governments, et cetera. And then the second macro means is the union. And the opening essays make the case for union and show that the union cannot be preserved by a government less energetic than the one established by the Constitution and certainly not under the Articles of Confederation. So really the first half of the Federalist is about union, the second half is about a republic. And it's interesting that when you think about the two parties that immediately formed under the Constitution after it was ratified, one of them was called the Federalist Party, which emphasized the importance of union. And you see that, for example, in Washington's farewell address. The other one was called the Republican Party, which naturally emphasized the importance of the Republican principles. And you see that best in Jefferson's first inaugural address. So, you know, we see this, this broad account of, of the proper means to achieve those ultimate ends laid out in the Declaration, uh, elaborated upon in the Federalist for sure. And, and then you see that as, as you begin to operate under the Constitution, that you have differences over whether you should emphasize one of those macro means or the other. But uh, it's, it's a debate within the boundaries of a common consensus that these are the primary means necessary to establish that good end. Right, and I think it's another, uh, another example of this discussion of means and ends applied to American history is that if you take up the question of the Civil War, the question that the debate between the two parties is what was the original purpose or end for the establishment of the United States, right? And you have the North uh, who makes the case that all well, the establishment was based upon, right? This notion of political equality, right? The equality within the declaration is stressed and the South that stresses the liberty element, right? The sovereignty of states to be able to decide how they are to live, right? That it, it, it's their choice how they are to live. So here this kind of debate over ends. And I mean, one of the wonderful things about reading Lincoln is that he gets us, he understands clearly, right, that, that we're, we're, we're having a debate over the most important thing we can, which is why we established the United States um, in the first place. And I think that oftentimes when you track with contemporary political debate, there's much less clarity 
that what we're arguing about or arguing over are those original purposes as to why we became a nation in the first place. Uh, it seems things are a lot more personality driven. Um, there, there's a lot more um, ideology at play, but very rarely does a politician say, well, let's go kind of go back to first principles as to why we became a people in the first place and understand what the relationship between government and, and the governed is. I think if we were to do that, it would produce a clarity for the electorate that would kind of, okay, you'd get to see, you know, you know, why is, you know, there the, um, the, the give and take between the political parties, uh, which is why when, you know, ever we've tried to teach American political history, it is essential, even though if you're, if you're conservative leaning, it's essential that you go through that part of American intellectual history after the Civil War, right up until the 1920s and 30s, where you see how progressivism came into being and how it relays a different end, um, a, a different meaning for American political life than that original one as stated at the founding. Yeah, in fact, in an hour, I'm giving an exam to my students and one of the essays is really about the three different competing accounts of the regime that you find in the Civil War era. You have the Founders Republic, represented by Lincoln. You have a, a, a hyper-democratic regime, represented by Stephen Douglas, among others. And then you have a Southern, uh, effectively, oligarchy that's advocated by John Calhoun. Of course, he's dead by the time of the Civil War, but his, his successors like Jefferson Davis, Alexander Stevens, and others. And so what's important for them to recognize and different from the founding, that consensus we were just talking about has been supplanted by a division over the ends. It's no longer common ends and we're debating about means. Now we're really debating about the ends themselves. And, and you're right, as you forward move forward into the 20th century, 21st century, that continues to be the case. As you say, at the root of our political divisions today is the fact that we have at least two, and probably more than that, competing notions of the ultimate goal uh, of the end. And so is it any wonder that we have such a difficult time working through political questions like abortion and others when, when it's the ends that are, we're divided on and not merely the means? Right. And one of the things that gets brought up here by Aristotle is that you may not always be able, even if you have an end that you agree upon, uh, to be able to attain that end. Oftentimes, you think that the what goes into attaining your end are having enough uh, external goods around you to make uh, that end possible uh, to attain. And, and here he says, no, no, it, it's not the things around you that allow you to achieve the end that you have in mind. They can help, right? So it's good to have a supply of those things around you to make something work. But if you're dependent upon the context or the circumstance in which you live and, and, and you don't realize that what, what you need is a clear purpose and what you need is a clear sense as to what or what's required of us in terms of achieving that end, then, then you're always going to mistake um, the gain that, that, that comes from virtue for the means and the end necessary uh, in order to achieve happiness. Uh, and, you know, this is a, you know, another nice thing to apply to American history, because you think about 
just the great bounty of the North American continent, just, you know, the, where we are placed, we're placed in this, um, on this land that had, that gives such a great supply for American, the material supply for all the things that we do throughout our history. But, you know, then again, if you were just to say, well, it's, it's, we were just lucky to, to land on the North American continent, you would have a mistake in what made America tick, that it required us to have a purpose and it required us to work the land in order to achieve the prosperity that we've achieved. Yeah, that's right. And that's that's an important point, I think, for later on, where he talks about, you know, your individual life, what are you working toward? And, and I think it's one of the things, not just an element of the American context, but really in, in God's creation, that we have a responsibility to be working and to be subduing the earth, as it says in Genesis 1. And so it's, it's I think, one of the things that's noted in de Tocqueville as, as a key feature of a democracy is this extra honor that's given to, to work, whereas in aristocratic societies, it's dishonorable to work, right? Your, your, your goal is to not have to work. It's, you know, it's embarrassing to admit that you once had uh, a shop or, you know, you, you kept up a trade and your, your, your aim is to make enough money so you never have to do that again. Um, but there's something very democratic in the notion that, no, it's, it's, it's a good thing to labor and, and to work hard and to see the fruits of that labor and, and, and to contribute to the community's benefit as you, as you do that. Uh, even if your primary concern is providing for yourself, the, the spillover effects are, are socially beneficial as well. So how do you learn how to work and how do you learn virtue is, is really kind of where Aristotle goes from here. And he writes that there are three things which make men good and virtuous. These are nature, habit, and rational principle. And he goes on to explain, in the first place, everyone must be born a man and not some other animal. Key point here, right? That we were human beings. So too, he must have a certain character both of body and soul. So here he's defining the human being. But some qualities there is no use in having at birth, for they are altered by habit. And there are some gifts which by nature are made to be turned by habit to good or bad. And then he compares the human being with an animal. Animals lead for the most part a life of nature. Although in lesser particulars, some are influenced by habit as well. Man has rational principle in addition, and man only. Wherefore, nature, habit, rational principle must be in harmony with one another, for they do not always agree. And I think here, when he's going through this kind of definition of what a man is, as opposed to an animal, I I think forward to Thomas Hobbes' discussion of the same in Leviathan, will he'll argue contra Aristotle, that the fact that man possesses a rational principle is a bad thing that our rational principle leads us to war with one another because we use our rational principle to disagree, to lie, to compete, uh, to do all those things uh, that tend toward war. Whereas here, Aristotle is going to argue that, okay, in order to be virtuous, right, you have to, you're talking about human virtue here. So you're talking about human nature. There are habits that are needed, but the, the human being must be harnessed by rational principle in order to be virtuous. And this is where instruction, this is where education, 
Um, this is where uh, he's going to move for the rest of the politics, just how important it is to try to um, insert within our livelihood a rational principle that, that persuades us to do what we ought to be doing. Uh, on the one hand, there's no doubt that our reason is often used for corrupt purposes as we follow the sinful impulses of our hearts, as, as we're guided by our fallen nature to, to wicked ends. So that, as Aristotle himself would say elsewhere, that you know human beings can be worse than the worst beast um, when they're corrupt. Um, so there's something certainly in Hobbes' concern about that, but there's also the fact that God has given us this quality as part of being image bearers of God, and, and we have uh, a special ability to, to worship him, to, to learn from him, and to honor him and serve him. And so, you know, what, what makes the difference ultimately is, is the work of the Holy Spirit. But there are other means that can be used, like habituation, education, et cetera, that, that at least put some measure of restraint on the worst impulses of, of, a, of a fallen human being. So at the beginning of chapter 14, uh, Aristotle writes that every political society is composed of rulers and subjects. And he's talked about the relations between rulers and, and subjects. And he's going to get in here to the discussion of what type of education is, is necessary. So what's the right political education? So if, if human beings within a political community are to live virtuous lives, what do they need to be taught in order to live those virtuous lives? So how, what, what are the main um, parameters of that teaching? Yeah, well, he's going to get into this, I think, further in book eight, but we're going to see the, you know, the, the cardinal virtues come forward, justice, wisdom, uh, moderation, and courage. He's going to talk about those in particular, uh, and he's going to talk about how a person might go from, at a young age, being, being ruled to being prepared over the course of time to being a ruler, as, as you are trained in those qualities of virtue, and you see examples of that perhaps in, in key public figures, then you're being prepared to assume those offices yourself in, in due course. Yeah, and it's interesting that um, oftentimes we think about how we want to attain a goal and, and attainment means um, gain, it means uh, acquisition, it means uh, ag an aggregation of things. And here, you know, Aristotle is going to re uh, remind us that if what you're after is a virtue uh, and what you're after is happiness, so uh, uh, happiness brought on uh, by virtue, it's going to be very important for the political leader to define in clear terms what that happiness looks like. So what a good peace looks like. And, and from that conception of what a good peace looks like, Everything that you're teaching, everything that you're instilling within the young ought to have the end of that peace in mind, right? So what is a happy and stable peace? And that's, that's, that's novel, right? Because you hear you think what well, Aristotle's writing in a time where uh, individual city-states are warring with one another, what, what defines happiness is how many external goods, what type of army that you have. And Aristotle is, is, is telling the ruler that don't think about trying to develop yourself the largest army possible. 
start with the end that you have in mind, a concept of what true victory in life would be in happiness, in peace, and then think through what you need in order to achieve that end. So it's, it's, it's very forward thinking here on Aristotle's part. Yeah, I agree. That's a great point because it's, it's really quite explicit in its critique of, of the Spartan model in particular, which, you know, looking back on it, of course, many have admired as, as maybe the, the, the best expression of, of a small R Republican political life in the ancient Greek world. Of course, others admire Athens. It's, it's openness uh, as a precursor to contemporary democracy. But those are the two models that you're often presented with. And, and for Aristotle to suggest that you're really not thinking about the ultimate end of political life properly if you're focused on enslaving others, of course, you have to protect against being enslaved yourselves. So that, that's why you have military power, he says. But, but you, your goal shouldn't be to conquer and dominate, um, which isn't really noble ultimately. Right? To, to rule as a master over somebody isn't as noble as, as to rule over them in a way that involves shared governance of ruling and being ruled in turn. And so aim for something higher. And for something, some more, more more difficult and excellent than mere conquest and defeat of your enemies, which would be a good analog for our own political life, right? We don't fight war literally against each other, but there is certainly a sense of trying to conquer the enemy in, in politics uh, rather than persuading the enemy, you know, creating a consensus behind a vision of the common good that, that could actually be good for, for everybody in the community. Yeah, and it's going to, I think, for him encourage us to have a reordering of our priorities. Uh, so what's most important, uh, the care for our body or the care for our soul? And we ought to care for both of those things, but soul care, right, is essential. Peace is essential. Having a definition of happiness is essential. Thinking through um, the continuity between these principles is essential to the good life. And, um, you know, as we've discussed, these were not this was not the way that most people looked at life when he was writing, right? What they would have talked about is the external goods that one has, uh, to care for the body, what type of power or strength uh, that you have. And here Aristotle is, is kind of discussing a, a whole new rendering of humanity and how human beings ought to live that uh, I think as you, um, as, as you've suggested uh, is a precursor, right? To the, uh, the most perfect definition of what we ought to be doing, which is, um, you know, living um, as image bearers uh, of God and realizing that our ultimate principle is his glory and not our own, uh, is soul care tended towards becoming more Christ-like uh, rather than uh, working toward achieving principalities and kingdoms uh, in this life. Yeah, that's right. And, and that ultimately, it's the union of body and soul in the new heavens and new earth with the, the full recovery of what was lost in the fall that we're looking forward to. And, and so the body isn't just something that we're temporarily passing through while our soul is perfected, but, but actually body and soul together perfected will be the way in which we uh, experience our life in the new heavens and new earth where we're, where we're working again in, in a blessed way without the difficulties of the curse and, and all the troubles that accompany our work today, that, that, that's something we can look forward to with expectation 
because of Christ and because his resurrection has, has shown us the way leading ultimately to ours. All right, well, we'll wrap up the show with Tocqueville's crystal ball. And, you know, we like to do a little bit of accountability here. So we've got a couple of recent picks to check in on. Uh, NBA, we made our preseason picks. We made some pre-postseason picks. And I'd say so far, so good. Uh, there's eight teams left, of course, now that the first round is complete. And that includes uh, the four teams that we each picked for the finalists. And at this point, all of our picks have the home court advantage. So I, I picked two, uh, three seeds to make the finals, and they've each won one away game. So that's flipped the home field in their advantage. And both of your teams are up 1-0 in their series, holding court as, as the favorites, as the number one seeds in their, in their conference. So we'll see. But uh, we might be setting ourselves up for a, a fun Eastern and Western Conference final between our, our two pairs of teams and I'm hoping I'm wrong. I mean, I'd, I'd love to see the Celtics get in there. Um, yeah, me and too. Play, play Golden <laughs> State. I think that'd be a wonderful uh, series, but uh, we'll yeah. see. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was encouraged by the Celtics come back last night after a, a bad game one, but we'll see how it all shakes out. So NFL draft uh, was last week. We had four multiple choice questions. Dave, you did quite well. So you got the first overall pick was Trayvon Walker. Uh, you got the right landing place for Kenny Pickett, Pittsburgh. And, you know, if you hadn't insisted on having an extra choice for the Pats position, you would have been right on that too. Because of the, of the four that I gave you, you, you picked offensive line, but then you won defensive line. And so I gave that to you. And unfortunately, that led to you missing that one. I, uh, meanwhile, got Pickett and that was it. <laughs> so, uh, Neither of us had Malik Willis, correct? He went over the Titans, which wasn't any of the choices that I that I gave us. So overall, I'd say, you know, you did pretty well, Dave. Um, and we'll see how the Pats draft plays out over time. From what I've read, a lot of folks not super impressed, but you never know. Bill Belichick's pulled more than one rabbit out of a hat. That's right. On to the NHL. Yeah, so the NHL playoffs have started. We didn't make our picks before the first couple of games, but – it's a long postseason, so we're going to do it anyway. You know, you've got a pretty solid track record uh, on NHL picks. Uh, I know nothing. I might as well pick names out of that. So we'll see how we do. But, uh, Dave, who do you see advancing to the finals and ultimately lifting Lord Stanley's Cup? I'm going to choose the, uh, the Colorado Avalanche as my Stanley Cup uh, winner. And uh, I think that offense is going to uh, really – rule the day here in, uh, in, in the Stanley Cup. And the Avalanche can certainly put the puck in the net. And I'm going to go with them over the Florida Panthers. So that's going to be my choice. The Avalanche okay. win the Stanley Cup. So you've got the two top seeds. It really has been a crazy year from the standpoint of goal scoring. I just, every time I look at the scores for hockey, there's somebody that scored seven or eight or nine goals. And you think, wow, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was all defense. Um, the, so, Avalanche, the Avalanche have scored seven goals or more nine times this season, which is yeah, great. That, that is nuts. Um, and, you know, you, all of a sudden we're kind of seeing some of those scoring, individual scoring records that are, you know, seem so out of reach. Gretzky and Lemieux, not, not quite there, but, but people are moving into those spheres in ways we haven't seen in recent years. Nevertheless, um, the only thing I know about hockey is that usually it's the hot goaltender that carries you to the cup. So I looked up 
the two teams that have given up the fewest goals this year on the assumption that that means they have the best goaltending. And so I'm going to go with the Carolina Hurricanes over the Calgary Flames. So Carolina gave up the fewest goals in the whole NHL, Calgary the fewest goals in the Western Conference. And so those two teams match up. It's a defensive struggle, but Carolina wins it, I'll say, probably in six or seven games. So you're saying defense rules the day, and I'm saying that offense will. Yep. Okay. yep. Well, we'll see. It could be an interesting – these are all the four division winners, so it could be an interesting conference final if we get there with these four teams still alive. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. Thank you, as always, for listening. Please remember you can subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also contact us at democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. Look forward to talking to you soon.